Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme today. So I want to talk about housing in this programme. No, not about falling house prices, but two decades since Tony Blair commissioned a certain Kate Barker to review the state of the UK's housing supply. We've been speaking to the former Bank of England policymaker about what, if anything, has actually changed since then. What she makes also of... All the main political parties now putting house building targets front and centre. They can see uh, appeal to voters in sight. Yeah, it's a really good conversation. But first, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has been welcoming the rise in real pay growth against the backdrop of falling inflation because he says it means people have more money in their pockets. Now, we've got a partial peak at the state of the labour market in this morning's official data from the Office for National Statistics. And the overall trend is a cooling labour market, which suggests that the Bank of England could be done with raising interest rates, or at least that's what the fall in the pound in response to the numbers implies that markets reckon. Yeah, we're five weeks out from the next autumn statement from the Chancellor. We know that the next general election is pretty much bound to be fought on economics. So this is why all this data is so vital uh, for, you know, the political world. It doesn't mean that the cost of living crisis is suddenly sorted out. And there's a really big big pay gap also that always shows up in these figures between public sector pay and private firms. We also know that the number of job vacancies is coming down. So things are getting tighter for workers. You know, it's the 15th consecutive time that we've seen the number of overall vacancies actually sort of coming down. Well, this is why when we were in Liverpool listening to Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves speaking last week, she wants to make this election all about the economy. But look, we get the all-important inflation reading tomorrow. The expectation is for another tick down to 6.6%. And then on Tuesday, we get the other half of these jobs numbers, including that crucial unemployment print. And there's a debate at the Bank of England about how much previous rate hikes have fed through, how reliable the official numbers are. But for now, this number, these, these numbers that we got this morning really underscore that the UK's dwindling economic growth uh, is not not great no and therefore takes the pressure off the central bank to carry on tightening yeah absolutely 5.25 percent for interest rates currently in the uk so look party conference season is over and despite the geopolitical turmoil that we know is happening the stage is set for the big political event of the autumn jeremy hunt's fiscal statement now you'll be forgiven perhaps if you've forgotten that there was a statement also from jeremy hunt only last year he reversed nearly every one of his predecessor quasi Quateng's policies. The Chancellor and Rishi Sunak were hoping that stabilising the UK economy would then give them some space to be able to announce some bold new measures, maybe some tax cuts out of the next general election. Yeah, cash in the dullness dividend. 
Now, our reporter Tom Reese has been looking at a report from the Institute for Fiscal Studies and they think a bit differently. This is something that they usually do before budgets. They say that the UK is in a horrible fiscal bind. They want to disabuse the current government of any notion that big tax giveaways or tax cuts ahead of a general election are going to be possible. This is something that the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has been laying the groundwork for. Tom, why aren't they possible? Um, basically, IFS gave a pretty grim prognosis on the public finances um, overnight. Uh, they were expecting bigger deficits in the medium term than we were expecting back in March at the budget. Um, and that they're very clear that there's absolutely no scope for tax cuts this year or next, which is, um, I'm sure many Tory MPs will will ignore that and still call for them anyway. But um, I mean, the basic reason for that is because growth is miserable. And since the March budget, market interest rates across the curve are a lot higher. And that means that the UK is facing its highest sustained interest bill since the 1980s. And I I think what the IFS are really worried about is that, you know, this is a dire fiscal position heading into an election where, you know, the Tories are very far behind in the polls and the Chancellor would normally be reaching for big giveaways to bribe voters to, you know, claw back a few votes. But um, there's absolutely no space for that. And even doing so, you know, would risk a repeat maybe of of that market turmoil during the, uh, the Liz Trust premiership. Yeah, absolutely. It's debt. It's the cost of debt as interest rates have gone up. That's so, so difficult. Okay, so if there really isn't much scope for tax cuts, as you say, to sort of bribe, persuade voters, what about the idea of stabilising the UK economy? And how would you characterise the UK economy right now? Have Hunt and Sunak managed to make any progress that they could show to voters and their own MPs? I think undoubtedly, you know, um, the economy and the public finances are on a sounder footing than when they arrived. But I mean, when they arrived, it was it was a pretty pretty dire situation. And I I just wonder whether stabilisation's good enough for voters. I think I think they want to see a, a, a more a brighter you know growth picture going forward. Um, and it, it is a really grim picture for the UK economy. Inflation has been stickier than we're expecting. Interest rates are higher than, you know, uh, maybe the Bank of England would have hoped to have um, put them. And it's just led to this very stagnant picture going into the final quarter of the year. We're seeing the labour market come off um, quite quite a bit now. And just heading into that election, weak growth, unemployment rising relatively quickly now, um, I, I it just it's not it's not a great record to be standing mm. on, even if they have stabilised the picture. Yeah, Tom, I just want to get your analysis of those UK jobs data we were talking about this morning. Um, mm. You were covering a speech by the big dove of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, yep. Swati Dingra, today. She says she expects even more of an easing in wage pressures. So, does that mean we're headed towards a recession? Um, if you look at some parts of the labour market, it does look like we are we could be heading to recession. The, the job state has been quite confusing in the last couple of months because essentially it's been split. On one side, we've had very, very fast records, even um, wage growth, particularly in the private sector. And then on the other side, we've actually seen unemployment uh, starting to pick up. You know, we've seen inactivity start to improve. So that's led to a, um, a greater supply of um, workers. Um, and 
Today we saw the wage figures start to turn. Um, we saw the private number come off a bit. Um, we're, st- we're now actually seeing real wage growth because inflation's come down um, a bit. So uh, that suggests that this loosening is of the labor market is finally feeding through to the wage figures, and that the Bank of England will be pretty pleased about that because they've actually been dismissing the official wage data in in their most recent comments. So that they've sort of saying it doesn't really make sense compared to the other survey data that we get. Um, the other survey data sort of suggested that wages have been coming off more strongly, and finally mm. we're seeing that um, in the official data. Mm. I mean, when it comes to a recession, though, and actually, I mean, if we think about it from the voter perspective, it is all about employment and unemployment, isn't it? Mm. I mean, if if we've seen the wages kind of diverge, if you've got the skills that people want, then, you know, employers will pay up and in fact, you know, give you a hefty uh, salary increase. For others, that's not the case. I mean, if we start to see a big tick up in unemployment, that has much bigger ramifications. Remember, it's the thing that the government spent a fortune on avoiding happening to the yep. UK during the pandemic. It affects the ha- you know the housing market then becomes an issue. I mean, next week's unemployment figures could could be, uh, you know, are, are one to watch, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And I actually think people slightly underestimate how much unemployment's already gone up. I mean, I know we're still at relatively low levels historically at 4.3%, but it's still up 0.8 percentage points um, compared to um, last year's trough. And that might not sound a lot, but, you know, there's there's something called the SARM rule, which suggests that if you go above 0.5 percentage points um, compared to the the trough in the previous 12 months then you're heading into a session so that's actually quite a grim signal we're getting from what has historically been quite a good indicator of whether you go into recession so where does it leave these on your bike policies that we heard from jeremy hunt at tory conference this this suite of policies to try and reduce labor market inactivity that uh, mel stride the work and pension secretary has been working on are we likely to hear more about that in the autumn statement I think so. I think, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Jamie Hunt's kind of quiet supply side revolution, that all these different things that can, you know, on their own might not sound like a lot, but hopefully together can actually do things like improve uh, labour market supply. Um, so I'm, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about um, all, all of that at the autumn statement, um, basically because there's no money to spend uh, to do anything actually um big in terms of you know um on the, on the demand side so um I, we will hear that but i mean maybe we shouldn't be worried that about labor market supply that much given that you know where unemployment's heading so maybe that'll be um be less of an issue uh hmm. by, by the autumn statement Okay. A last thought then. I mean, there is um, still, you know, the the kind of ends of party conference season happening in the Scottish National Party. Um, We were at Labour, we were at Tory, we heard from uh, the Liberal Democrats. Is anybody else, is there any other policy out there that sort of sparks your interest when we think about the UK economy um, as we are sort of inching towards that next general election? Anything that you've noticed that is worth underlining? Um, I think the one thing that economists would definitely look at and um, 
very much welcome is the stuff that Keir Starmer was talking about in terms of planning reforms, because it's it's something that the UK economy has been crying out for for absolutely ages. Businesses hate the planning laws in this country, at least massive delays. It's really costly and it just stops you building stuff. And I think we finally got some, a good sense from Keir Starmer that they are going to bulldoze through some of these planning planning issues that have really held back, you know, infrastructure, um, house building, all, all these other different kind of things. So I, I think in terms of, you know, um, things that you can do to help get growth going again and things that are actually, you know, don't cost that much. I think planning reforms is pretty high on the list. Well, what a perfect note to end on. Tom Rees, our UK economy reporter, thanks so much for that analysis. We're going to turn now to Labour's economic plans, some of which we heard last week in Liverpool. Keir Starmer's flagship policy is to build one and a half million homes over his first term in office, so the next five years after the general election, and that would be to help fix Britain's property market. Now, former Bank of England policymaker Kate Barker, Dame Kate Barker, led former Prime Minister to Tony Blair's review into housing 20 years ago and it began with the words the long-term upward trend in house prices and recent problems of affordability are the clearest manifestations of a housing shortage in the UK sounds familiar to me Caroline uh, listen absolutely but I think that it's important to say that that the house building targets have been immensely difficult to reach they're has been a huge problem with home building in the UK, but now it seems to be in the sights of all the political parties. Um, so, you know, the government says that it's still committed to its 300,000 target per year. You know, Keir Starmer's one and a half million homes, that breaks down also to perhaps 300,000 uh, new homes a year. But then the Liberal Democrats have talked about wanting 400,000 new homes a year. And then even Liz Truss, also at the Conservative Party conference, talked about building half a million new homes. The difficulty, I think, is how do you get developers to deliver that, the planning rules and so on? What Kate Barker was uh, with us in studio to sort of think back over the last two decades and actually what has gone wrong for the UK in terms of home building uh, and how things might change. If we are... Well, it's hard to know whether things have really gone wrong. Actually, if you look right back at the period just after I produced the report, we saw quite a sharp rise in house building. That, of course, was then stalled by the financial crisis. We then saw another run-up until, of course, we then ran into Brexit, COVID and the Ukraine crisis. So it's important to remember that when you're aiming for a house building target, it's not necessarily something you want to meet year by year. It's something you need to meet over a bit of a, a cyclical period. And that cycle will include lots of shocks. So you have to have one or two years when you're going to be above that target because inevitably there are going to be years when things happen and you run and you run under it. The targets that I produced 20 years ago, it's unbelievable to me it's 20 years ago, were not as high as 300,000 a year. But of course, since then, we have probably built up quite a backlog so 300,000 a year which is now a very popular number it's a nice round number is one that I, I think should be aimed at and therefore I would support the 1.5 million over five years. Okay but consistently in in the last couple of decades we have not exceeded 
300,000. We've not gotten anywhere near 300,000 homes built per year. Would your recommendations to government be different now or are we actually in the same, if not a worse place, two decades on? I think we probably are in a slightly worse place, which is why I think we need a, a, a larger target than the one I recommended then. One thing that I thought was particularly appealing about the Labour Party's announcements last week, although occasionally we've had similar announcements from the Conservatives, after all they've been in office a long time, we've seen a lot of housing ministers and a lot of announcements, was the decision to have some new towns. I have, in fact, also, of course, from the Conservative government got this proposal for an expansion near, near Cambridge. New towns was something I proposed actually 20 years ago and without having some new towns having some really big places that are being built out more or less consistently I think we will struggle to get up to the 300,000 a year target. How much of a boost would it be to economic growth if Starmer can get these 300,000 homes a year built or indeed any other party? We're able to build in areas that really have growth potential that will, that will, I think, be very helpful to growth. It's also helpful to growth if we have a housing market which is more controlled so that people are less, we're all less encouraged to invest in house prices as opposed to investing in something else. So we tend to invest in housing today because we think it's a good investment for the long term. It's very important that we think that what's investing for the long term might mean investing in British business. Should the tax system be disincentivizing people making money from rent as landlords? There were some quite important changes to the tax system um, in I think about sort of 2014-2015 which did disincentivize landlords to some extent and we see other disincentives to landlords coming in now around the need to insulate homes and improve the quality. So I, I think we've probably gone as far as we should in disincentivising landlords because it is important to have a private rental market that exists. A different point is should we have something in the tax system that disincentivises us all to look forward to the capital gain on our on our primary residence or should we have a system of council tax that is much more responsive to price change? Those are incredibly unpopular ideas which is why I don't think I'm pretty sure that none of the people perhaps, although you may correct me if I'm wrong, at the party conferences talked about them. But actually if we don't think about how we tax how we tax house housing gain for people who live in them, we'll probably also struggle to really get housing better distributed. Just in terms of um, house building and the the impact then could it actually exacerbate the house price slump i mean the, the uk economy is um to some extent reliant on what we've seen in the last 20 years which is an inflation in terms of land values and, and home price values um does committing and actually delivering on the 300,000 pledge have a significant impact in terms of house prices the sort of wealth effect but but also just you know the fact that that home and land values in the UK are quite inflated well as I've already commented I think it's quite important that we think about how that incentivizes people to overinvest in residential property in particular as opposed to other things so in the long run I think it's worthwhile in the short run of course we might have a period of price adjustment which will be quite painful for some people particularly people who have bought relatively recently will find may find that they're moving into a position of negative equity now that should be 
less prevalent than it was in previous downturns because of the one improvement that was made in the 2010s, which was the change to the way the mortgage market works, so that mortgage lenders really had to see some deposits so that everybody had a bit more skin in their game to start with. So I don't think we will have so much difficulty. If people really believed in the 300,000, then I think actually it would have an effect on dampening house price rise, house price rises and house price expectations. My view is that would be a good thing. But I don't think this is suddenly going to come about as a great shock that people will wake up one day and say, oh, wow, they're really going to do 300,000. It's much more likely it will become a gradually so I don't think it would cause a big move in house prices. Well until that target is taken seriously we've already had 14 straight interest rate rises from the Bank of England do you think that there's more of an adjustment in store for house prices because some economists have predicted a peak to trough drop in double digits? I think there probably is a little bit more to go in house prices we've already seen in even relative to earnings have not risen as much as prices but we've already seen house prices move down relative to earnings as the interest rates feed through to the people who are on fixed rate mortgages i think we will tend to see that going i think we'll tend to see that going further so the peak to trough might be in excess of 10 percent 10 to 15 percent over over time um, but people will have a bit of time to there will be time to adjust to it mm. Do detect a tipping point. We're talking a lot about the potential, the idea of more home building, of of having perhaps a slightly saner housing market in the UK. Do you detect political will? You know, it it does seem to be, and Labour perhaps is pointing to this, that it is becoming a generational issue in the UK in terms of home ownership. It's it's vastly skewed towards you know an increasingly older population do you, do you detect any tipping point i wish i could be certain of a tipping point but you sort of look back at the 2010s and think well why the heck wasn't there a tipping point then because of course the rise in house prices as interest rates fell benefited enormously everybody who already who already owned a home and was really unhelpful to all the people who didn't unless their parents owned a home so it wasn't just in, intergenerational it was also very intragenerational mm. you know really having a whole group of people who were priced out so I, I hope this I, I genuinely hope this is a tipping point but you'll sort of forgive me if I say I've spent 20 years waiting for this to really happen and I'm still still when push comes to shove there tends to be a bit of move away from really tackling the forces that weigh against building more in their areas I've heard this phrase inheritocracy. Is the UK now an inheritocracy? I mean, in some ways, the Conservative Party are talking about doing away completely with inheritance tax. So that's a possibility, maybe. We hear that that's what Rishi Sunak favours in terms of priorities for taxes to cut. When you think about um, the inheritocracy, I think that's a, that's a really great phrase. I hadn't encountered it before. <laughs> we already have a very, you know, really very generous allowance for for inheritance so I'm not sure doing away with it actually would make all that much all that much difference but I, I tend to, I tend to agree we are moving into a situation where people's life chances have gone back to depending a little bit more on where their parents stood not just in terms of their earning power but also in terms of their acquisition of property wealth and I, I feel very personally I feel very uncomfortable about that I think it I think it, you know 
if we allow that to continue and roll forward and indeed even encourage it, um, 20, 30 years down the line, that will be bad news. But this is a slow burn issue and politicians hate tackling slow burn issues. So that was Dame Kate Barker, the former Bank of England policymaker and author of the 2003 Barker Review on uh, the UK housing supply. She did say eventually that she is an optimist, uh, but she did point to, you know, her disappointment, I think, about how difficult it's been actually to move the needle when it comes to building homes for people in the UK. Yeah, interesting that she backed this 300,000 number, even if she thinks it'll be hard to reach. It seems that the size of Keir Starmer's majority, if he wins, is really going to matter for the market in terms of how seriously traders, investors take Keir Starmer's long-term plans and therefore how much house prices would fall. And yet you have to wonder whether he really can achieve a landslide majority when he's also battling the Lib- Liberal Democrats in the South. No, absolutely. I thought the other thing to tease out of this that is so interesting from the business perspective and how and how do you actually change the planning laws in the UK? Kate Barker very much advocating for it not to be at council level, but for it to be maybe not not at, at national level, but at some regional level that she called it, um, so that the planning rules could be organised you know, more efficiently. She is very keen on Labour's idea of having new towns. She said that you basically couldn't deliver enough homes in the right sorts of places unless you kind of build new new towns, which has been in the past a Labour policy too. Yeah, and something she proposed 20 years ago. Well, that's all we've got time for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.